Yeah, that's the big thing that the, the public doesn't always get the connection between how things get distributed listing wise. So the MLS, the multiple listing services were the brokers who have all the information, put it out there in the world. So it starts, it's disseminated from the MLS and it goes out publicly. So the question was, does that fee or should that fee be posted where the public can see it and they know how much their agent is getting paid? It's a, it could be important as part of the negotiation process of the price of the house. It's certainly going to impact what a seller is willing to take on a house if they're paying both sides of a commission. Welcome to the Got Your Six Real Estate Podcast. In the military, Got Six means I've got your back. If you're a real estate buyer, seller, investor, or anyone who is committed to the Got Your Six mantra, ensuring that every client, neighbor, and community member feels supported in the property journey, well, you're lucky enough to find yourself in the right place. My name is Kevin Anazok, and I'm your host. Each week, we talk with successful real estate experts, veterans, and community leaders who are willing to share their insights, trade secrets, and mindsets that help them to succeed. There's no fluff, just straight to the point content that prioritizes one thing above all, your success. So without further ado, let's get started. I'm here today with Jim Mellon, M-E-L-L-E-N, a great friend and longtime local realtor. Welcome, Jim. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks for having me in. Awesome. I guess maybe tell folks a little bit about yourself and maybe how long you've been in real estate and uh, you know, just a little one-minute summary of Jim Mellon. Uh, I would say like everybody, I've been in real estate forever, it <laughs> seems like. But I got into real estate in 2003, so 20 years I've been doing real estate, everything real estate. No, no side hustles, everything that I do is all around real estate right now. So you joined kind of around 2003, 2006, was a huge market, just like we had during the pandemic. Tons of transactions, skyrocketing prices, and then the bottom fell out in what, about 2008? So kind of like almost a repeat of what we're going through now, but the big difference is prices aren't changing. Not this time. Uh, inventory has been the big difference. We saw, you know, I went back after 2007 when that market crashed and everybody, you know, had their heads cut off. The uh, From 2003 to 2005, we were building up and we actually started slowing down in 2005 before we ever saw the run up in 2007. And that's exactly what we had right now. We saw some kind of tough years between 2017, 18, 19. Things were slowing down in the pandemic hit and it ramped right back up again. But then we ran out of inventory. Nobody, nobody was selling their house. We had a ton of people who wanted to buy because the rates were so good. So yeah, real estate has been cyclical my whole 20 years and we've had ups and downs. And this one is just a blip like everything else. So we'll get out of it, but it's not too bad. It is cyclical. Just like investing, stock market is cyclical. It goes up and down, real estate goes up and down, and values were, I think I saw for August, we were like the 134th consecutive month of value increases. Mm -hmm. So demand is there. There's just a lot more people than there are houses available, yeah. even in this market. It was funny, in 2007, everybody thought that was the end and values were gonna were decimated, nobody would come back. We barely went down, and after 2007, if you you remember, we were doing deals then. And in 2007, we had a very short window of correction, and then it got great again, and it never stopped being great. 
And I think everybody was caught off guard that uh, we couldn't really explain why that happened, but it was, everybody was optimistic and, and things were happening. They were good in the market. We had really good interest rates, probably too good for a while. Um, and, and that helped, but then people were working. There was not a lot of unemployment. Things were really favorable and people were optimistic about their investment in real estate. It's a long-term thing, but people were making money short-term. That was really good. They could buy a house and sell it in three or four years and make money. And that's been true maybe up until this current market. We don't know if that's going to happen again. You might have to hang on to it a little bit longer, but, uh, but the real estate market is doing fine. Yeah, we're in fall 2023 and it's slower right now. And as you mentioned, a lot of people got low interest rates, either purchasing or refinancing. So a lot of those people aren't selling and they hold on to the home longer than they typically would. The, I guess, experts are saying spring, they're expecting things to take off. We should be seeing some rate recovery, but a lot of people are gonna be coming back into the market, but that's gonna put more demand pressure, but still gonna have supply issues because people with two and 3% rates still aren't gonna be selling. So it could be, uh, could be a better spring, but it may take some time before sellers are willing to sell and have the inventory coming back for people to actually buy. It's funny, people always say, is it, is it a good market or is it a bad market? And you say yes to both because it's good for somebody, everybody on the equation. There's, it's good for sellers today. There's not a lot of inventory. They have ample buyers. They don't have to give as many concessions. They can get closer to their price. They don't have to make the house as perfect as they used to. Uh, so it's great for sellers. Not that great for buyers because they don't have a lot of houses to pick from. And they might have to give up some of the things they want. Maybe the newer carpeting isn't in the house and the, the cabinets are the wrong color or something's wrong with the house and they're going to spend money on it on top of paying top dollar for it. So it's bad for them. But the really good markets would be when everybody's feeling like it's good for them. That would be outstanding. Or when the buyer and seller both leave the table thinking they could have gotten a better deal, then it was probably a fair deal. Right. Yeah. If everybody, if they went to the table, they, everybody must have thought it was a fair deal. They closed the deal. A lot of them fall apart. You know, somebody doesn't think they're getting that great deal in the beginning of it. Um, then they tend to walk away from the deal and, and you don't want that. It's hard on everybody. So, yeah. What are some of the biggest reasons you see people walk away? So let's say, you know, you have buyers under contract. Just personally, I've seen more people backing out of contracts once they're under contract than I have in probably my entire career. Uh, have you seen any of that? And why do you think that is? You know, we used to see that people would, would fall out of a contract, maybe because their financing fell through. But you guys do a great job today of getting everybody fully pre-approved before that process starts. So the buyer really doesn't have that as an out anymore, unless they've gone out and bought a boat or they filed bankruptcy and didn't tell you they were doing that. Um, but so the financing is not really the reason why people fall away from it. Usually it's they get cold feet because either something newer came on the market or one of their friends or somebody on Instagram or Facebook said, you shouldn't buy that house, you should buy this house instead. So they try to walk away from it. Um, but I think it's cold feet that, that cause people to do that, or they think they've made a bad choice. And we try not to do that. You know, as agents, we want them to buy, make a solid choice, be committed to it all the way through and be happy at the end of the deal. The last thing I want is somebody to call me a month after closing and say, I made a mistake. 
Yeah. That's hard to fix. You can take a pair of jeans back. <laughs> you can't take a house back. So no. they walk away before that. And that's tough. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen more buyer's remorse. I think it's the same thing. They get cold feet. You know, it's such a tough market to find a house, get under contract. So sometimes you get maybe competitive, like, all right, I'm going to get this one. You know, it's kind of an emotional decision. But then once you're under contract and you're looking at the cost and the mortgage payment, some people are like, ah, maybe, uh, maybe this isn't my best bet. Well, that happens to buyers and it happens to sellers too. I've had some, I had a seller recently who was getting ready to put his house on the market. He was excited about moving to Florida. He's still employed. He's a, a, a DOD civilian contractor. So he's got some longevity. He's got, he's got a reason to be working and, and the ability to keep working, but he pulled back on putting the house on the market in November because he was unsure about the government situation. And I, I tried to give him some advice and say, you know what, this goes on every year. This isn't something new. This happens every year. So I think the government's going to stay in business. They're in the business of spending money and they'll find a way to spend it. So he was unsure. So that that caused a seller to come out of the market in a, in a great time for a seller to sell. Yeah. And he was going to be a renter on the other end because he didn't know what he wanted to buy yet. So he was in a good situation, but got cold feet. Hmm. Wow. And it can be scary. I mean, it's a huge life decision. It's a it's a 10 year commitment now. If you buy a house today, you need to be in that house for 10 years. To, yeah, probably to recover the cost, to mm -hmm. to feel some improvement in the market, to pay a little equity down in the house. Um, it, it's a long term purchase today. It's not a quickie. Jim, you uh, have branded yourself as Revolution Real Estate Services. Yeah, you noticed. Yeah, tell me about the revolution. What's this revolution all about? So for. Uh, for a number of years, I felt like the real estate industry in general was due for a couple of changes, a couple of shakeups. And I wasn't quite sure when I was going to fit into that, what I was going to do. So uh, I've been in real estate 20 years. I worked for three local big companies. The last one, 13 years I spent with Remax. Outstanding company. I have nothing bad to say about any of the companies I worked with. Um, but as I was thinking about how real estate might change, I felt it was important to be out on my own and not have perhaps a negative impact on the agents that we're, we're working with that company and the way that company wants to work. Um, and real estate agents all work for a company and that company has policies and procedures and things you have to comply with. And I did all that and I never had a problem with any of them. But I think as the industry was changing, I needed to see uh, myself do it and, and take a shot at it. And I think the timing was right to do that this year. So I jumped out at Real Revolution. And what I'm trying to do is just have a, a better connection and a better communication of how I get paid because that's a big component of what we do is we have to get paid for what we do. And some people don't think we do. Some people think we're, we get paid too much money. Everybody thinks everybody else gets paid too much money. It's no different in real estate. Um, so the revolution is really just about offering people different services for different money. I'm not locked into a set fee. I'm not locked into a commission structure. I go in and look at a house, talk to a seller about what they might want, what they might need from me and what that house situation would look like. And I'll, and I'll tailor my fee around that. It may not, it doesn't have to be a commission structure or a percentage based commission. It's a flat rate. I say, here's how much it's going to cost to do what I need to do for you. The other side of that is how much we're going to pay the other side. How much does the seller, are they willing to pay the buyer? A lot of discussion in the real estate industry now about how, how buyer's agents are paid and who should pay them. And that everybody should have a buyer's agent. We really think every buyer should have a buyer's agent. 
the discussion doesn't happen, how that guy's going to get paid or that woman, how she, how are they going to get paid for what they do? And it's kind of glossed over and it's said, well, the, the seller's going to pay you. Okay. So the buyer gets their service, they get their representation and the seller decides how much they're going to pay them. And that's how it works. And I think it's due for a little bit of a change. Revolution, maybe. It's a revolution. It's a, it, it's a revolt. Not a revolt, but a revolution. Yeah. Well, it's in the news a lot lately. Uh, there's some pretty big lawsuits. Traditionally, when someone lists a house with an agent, and my understanding is there's like a 6% commission built in, and 3% goes to the buyer side, 3% goes to the listing agent, you know, and you know, they, they, so basically the commission is split. So the buyer doesn't have to pay for an agent to represent them. It comes out of the seller's side. Now, technically, they're going to end up paying more, you know, because all of that goes into the home price. And I think that's kind of the basis of that lawsuit. It's just been required that buyer's agents be compensated by the seller if they're going to list it publicly on the multiple listing service. And some folks don't think that should be the case. Yeah, that's the big thing that the, the public doesn't always get the connection between how things get distributed listing wise. So the MLS, the multiple listing services were the brokers who have all the information, put it out there in the world. So it starts, it's disseminated from the MLS and it goes out publicly. So the question was, does that fee or should that fee be posted where the public can see it and they know how much their agent is getting paid? It's a, it could be important as part of the negotiation process of the price of the house. It's certainly going to impact what a seller is willing to take on a house if they're paying both sides of a commission or both fees. And it's not a set commission. None of the companies have any set. Um, there's no requirement in the MLS to say it has to be 6% or it has to be this percent. Uh, I used to do a presentation when I'd go talk to sellers and I'd have a pack of six Oreos because that's how I broke down who was getting what. And, and I just picked six as that number, but I would split that Oreo in half and then show how that got distributed and, and how many Oreos I was done with at the end. And I was always hungry at the end. I never had enough Oreos in my pocket. So um, you split them in half to eat the cream out of the middle in your presentation. Well, if it's a, if it's the chocolate Oreo, I eat the whole Oreo, but if it's a golden Oreo, I eat the cream out of it and then I eat the cookie separate. That's a weird thing. I don't know why I do that. I usually eat the cream separate. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. We uh, talk to folks to try to give them information on purchasing, making great decisions. So what is maybe one or two things that you think every potential home buyer should know and be aware of? And what's maybe a mistake you see a lot that prospective buyers make? Well, I think the buyers have to be realistic that they're buying in most cases, a used house. Somebody else has lived in it, was built 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago. No matter what it looks like, there might be some things wrong with it that they're not going to find on a home inspection or, or that they're going to see when they buy the house. So they just need to be realistic that it's a house that's going to need maintenance when you buy it. It's going to need maintenance the year after you buy it and the year after that and the year after that. It's something you're going to always spend money on. Our cars, we spend a little bit of money on, but then we trade them in, we get rid of them. We stop spending big money before we have to. So we're not, nobody's putting, not a lot of people are going to put an engine in or a transmission in a, in a car. Um, but today, somebody might have to put a new kitchen in the house or they might have to remodel a master bathroom. So I think buyers have to be realistic and know their budget and say, okay, I know I'm going to spend money at some point in this house. Do I have it in my budget? And you guys are doing a really good job of making sure people aren't starting out in the hole 
So they do have that money in their budget as long as they don't go buy a boat. <laughs> the, right. the week after they buy the house, go buy a boat and have to spend money on that. Um, the biggest mistake I think that people have made the last couple of years is it's been a really aggressive seller's market and buyers had to do whatever they could to make the deal work. They were giving up home inspection contingencies or making them not contingent on home inspection. And I think that's a risk. And, and it got to the point where it was so common sellers expected it. You know, we, the sellers were told they're going to waive the home inspection. I don't know they're going to do that when anybody's looking at the house, but it'd be nice if they did. But even as a seller, it's a risk because now maybe they walk away from it after it's been off the market for 45 days and you have to try again. I'd much rather as a seller have the buyer make it contingent on a home inspection and choose to buy it or not at that point, not 45 days out, you know, and say, well, I, you know, now I need this extra repair I didn't want to do. So I think buyers ought to make it contingent. It's up to the agent to sell that to the other agent and say, here's why we're going to do it. Here's why it's important. And we're protecting everybody. You know, by my buyer asking for it, I think I'm protecting the seller too. Now, when I talk to you, you're often out working on the houses. <laughs> yeah, I do that, Is that you, do you do that for sellers, buyers? Like kind of what are you doing when you're out there and what kind of things should people be doing to their houses? Like if I'm looking to list it, what are some of the things that are going to make it sell better? A lot of it is just matching the price to the expectation. So if somebody wants top dollar, I think it really should be in pretty good shape. So. The small things that you can do is putting light fixtures in. You can change your kitchen cabinet knobs, some of your hardware around. You can touch up the painting. You can cosmetically do a lot of little things that have a big impact on the buyer's impression of the house. You don't have to do a, a master bathroom remodel, but if, if you want $650,000 out of a house that's only worth six hundred dollars in the condition it is, it doesn't make sense to do a $50,000 remodel on a bathroom. You just sell it for $600,000. Don't ask six fifty. dollars it's not worth it the way they see it. Um, but yeah, I do a lot of I do a lot of work for people before they sell it. Sometimes I do work for people after they sell it. I do work for people as a property manager on their houses to, you know, to keep them in good working condition and up to date. So I get into a lot more than than a lot of real estate agents might want to take on. Um, but I, I do it at a fair price and, and I'm available to do it. And finding a contractor today is is impossible finding somebody who's willing to work is hard finding somebody who's willing to work for a good price is harder um, getting them to show up is even worse so so I'm, i make myself available to my clients i don't offer these services to anybody else but my clients i try to help and, and do things for a fair price um, either as a buyer to help them get the house they want in the condition they wanted it in or as a seller to get more money out of selling it yeah my wife has a friend who's an electrician and he was telling her he has been so busy he was overbidding jobs mm -hmm. like to the point where it's like nobody's gonna pay this I, I can't take on the additional work i'm just gonna you know ramp up the price so you know as much as i appreciate the opportunity i'll get back to them but they'll probably go somewhere else and he said every single one of them accepts the bid so it's it's just so hard to find anybody to do work to show up Anybody that does good quality, it's a big lack of skilled tradespeople. It's funny, you look at the social media post and I routinely see that post that says, I need somebody that's that's really good, but really cheap. <laughs> and and they've got to be there fast. So I'm like, you just can't get it good, fast and cheap. Those things don't go into the equation when you're looking for a contract. 
So, you know, you can have good and you can have fast, but they're not cheap. Right. You can have cheap, but they're not good. Mm -hmm. So what do you really want? So, I, you know, people would be a little more realistic and say, you know, I'm willing to wait three or four weeks and get the right guy to do it for the right price rather than hire the wrong guy. Now it's got to be redone in three or four weeks because that guy screwed it up, but he was cheap. Yep. So nobody, you know, the only guy that won there is the guy who did it cheap and walks away from it. So good contractors are plenty busy. Just plan your work and get them, get them scheduled and, and wait for the right guy. Find the guy you want, wait for him. Well, yeah, because getting it done wrong definitely is going to end up costing you more in the long run. Oh, yeah. yeah. It, uh, there's never been a job that was done wrong that didn't cost more. It's, and sometimes people will say, I never had time to do it right the first time, but they always have right to do it the second or third time. It's like, why? Why don't you just do it right the first time? Exactly. <laughs> Take the time to do it right, whether you're the consumer buying the product or service or the guy doing it. And yeah, I, had a, I called somebody to do some underhouse plumbing work. And the guy said, uh, I don't do that anymore. I'm like, you don't do plumbing? He goes, no, I just don't go in our houses anymore. <laughs> I'm like, well, that's where a lot of plumbing is, is underneath the house. Mm -hmm. Don't you think you should be doing that? He goes, yeah, I don't want to do that. Yeah. They just pick and choose what they want to do. And that's a post, that's a during COVID and post COVID thing that nobody wants to work and do the hard stuff anymore. Everybody wants the easy job. Yep. Yeah. And talking about cost, my son, who's 17, so he really doesn't pay for much of anything of significance <laughs> yet. But whenever we're looking at buying something, you know, it says buy once, cry once, meaning buy the better thing and then, you know, it's gonna work, it's gonna last, use the better contract or whatever. So you cry once, not twice, when in six months you have to replace whatever it is. 17 year old said that? Yep. That's pretty good, you trained him good. <laughs> <laughs> and I've actually been talking to him about the trade. So like I look at this world and artificial intelligence, and so many jobs that artificial intelligence and robotics are probably going to replace in his career lifetime. So, you know, I've been talking to him and sending him information on different trades. He's not sure what he wants to do yet, but you know, there's amazing opportunities in, in trades. And I saw for every 25 people leaving skilled trades is only seven coming in, mm -hmm. like leaving like retirement, aging out and such. And that's not just swinging a hammer, installing pipes, but you know, the surveyors, the appraisers, you know, the engineers, the designers, like everybody in the skilled trades field, there's just not a lot of people going into it. So it's just going to get an even tighter field. Yeah, we. I don't. I don't know. You know, I, I graduated high school in '82, and I didn't. I went to college for the classes I wanted to take in college, but I, you know, I was an average student in high school, and I was an average student in, in college. I didn't graduate, but I took classes that I, that were important to me to take. But I think for the last 30 years, we put kids in college and said, "You got to go to college. Got to go to college. Got to get a degree." They didn't know what they wanted a degree in. They just got a degree, and then they get out of college. Now they got student debt. And they don't have a job or they can't get a job. And I think America needs to look at our education and, and put kids in a, in a technical track in high school and college and give them eight years to learn a trade and, and be really good at it because we don't, there's not enough airline pilots. There's not enough, you know, auto mechanics. There's not a lot of uh, nurses are getting out of, out of that field. There's just the skilled labor is dwindling, but the service business is up. So if you want somebody to go get your groceries for you, there's somebody to do that. If you're too lazy to, uh, or you can't, maybe there's a reason why you can't, but you're gonna call and get food delivered from Hardee's, 
um, because somebody's there to bring it to you. Hey, I'll vent but you can't get an electrician to, to work tomorrow or a plumber to work underneath the house, but they'll bring groceries to you. But they make so much money. It's such a great living. Yeah. And a college degree, a lot of it, having that degree just shows employers that, eh, I went for four years, I showed up on time, I met deadlines, I had projects and stuff. Probably more in a lot of fields than what you actually learned. You know, maybe if you're becoming you know, something in medical or an engineer or something, but I was a business major and I'm not sure I really learned much for the real world from being a business major other than those things. Uh, but, you know, I even told my son, go, you know, get your trade, but then maybe go to the local community college and do some business classes and such so that, you know, instead of being the plumber or the electrician, which is great, but you could also have a team and run, you know, run a small business or something. Yeah, good friend of mine. You know, a friend of my son's growing up, um, played baseball, did all the sports stuff with us, but he was kind of a goof off as a kid. And, he, you know, you didn't know what his direction was going to be. Well, he was in his early 20s and he, he started to work with electricians and he became a journeyman. And now he's got his journeyman's license in, in, his, in his early 30s. He's a master electrician. He's got a path that, that's wide open for him, you know, and, and he wasn't a college kid. But he was a smart kid and he figured it out, figured out his past. So you got to take something you're interested in, turn it into a job and you got to make. Yeah, absolutely. So what's a great real estate story? Something fun, something funny, something that, you know, just is entertaining or thought provoking, just something you've seen in your career. The one thing that's like, oh my goodness, well, let me tell you about this. Um. I've had a lot of weird things that have happened in the middle of a transaction. Sometimes they, they turn out to be funny and a lot of it revolves around probably insects or rodents or things that we find in houses and, and occasionally women don't like those. So I've had a couple of times where we had people in a interested in going in the crawl space and they see the snake in the crawl space and all of a sudden they didn't realize there were snakes in Virginia. Um, I had a lady one time I was showing her property and we were in Kings Mill at Christmas time and she was from New Jersey. I was with her and her son and, and they were both down here to buy a house. And we looked at probably 10 or 15 houses in that de December time period. And we pull into Kings Mill, get under this cul-de-sac and there's just this house we're going to see. And it's got a beautiful, it's just a beautiful day with a little bit of snow on the ground. And there were, a, there was deer on the front lawn and it literally, none of them moved when we pulled up to the house, there were statues. Lo and behold, we go to get out of the car and they scatter like ants. So the house, the lawn was full of real deer. And oh, that wow. lady had an absolute conniption. She <laughs> said, I can't live anywhere where there's wild animals. Deer everywhere. And I said, ma'am, this is Virginia. There are, those are, those are just lawn dogs. <laughs> we have them everywhere and there's wild animals everywhere, but I had never seen somebody get back in my car so quick as that lady from New Jersey who must've never seen a deer in her life. And at Christmas time, they did. They looked like, looked like it was a lawn decoration. <laughs> and that was funny. Oh, that was funny. really funny. Yeah, I would think they have deer in New Jersey, but maybe not quite as abundant. Maybe maybe they're smaller. I don't know. I don't know where they are in New Jersey, but probably on the side of the road, maybe. <laughs> yeah, we were walking through our neighborhood last night, uh, walking our dog, a German Shepherd. And she's in recent rescue, and she's nuts, and hasn't learned her walking manners yet and whatnot. And we came across a couple deer, but one of them was like four feet from us and just stood there. <laughs> didn't react, didn't move, our dog was going nuts, the deer didn't care at all. 
I sold a house in Kingsville. You know, Kingsville's got a lot of deer in it. So I sold a house there probably five or six years ago. He was uh, he was the base commander at Camp Perry. Super nice guy. Everybody knew him. Really nice. Um, so I'm in his house and his wife tells me, well, when we sell this house, the people are going to have to take care of Mary. I'm like, okay, who's Mary? <laughs> and she said, come about four o'clock. So I came at four o'clock and Mary was a deer who walked up to the back window of their sunroom and waited to be fed by this homeowner. Oh, wow. So they fed her bananas and pudding and all kinds of stuff. So this deer literally walked up to their house and got fed. And I talked to the, the buyers of the house after that, and they still feed, they were feeding Mary for another year after that. <laughs> and then Mary disappeared, but she was oh. an older deer, but anyway, but yeah. Good old Mary. That's awesome. You never deer. know what you're going to get when you buy a house, but it might be a deer. Yeah. And it might be snakes. <laughs> could be snakes. Yeah. It could be snakes or maybe they're Aaron. Yeah. When you ask a lot of real estate professionals, you know, tell me a story about real estate. A lot of them involve snakes. Yeah. Snakes aren't, snakes are, Nobody likes snakes, I guess. We don't like snakes either, but we take it for granted. Snakes are good, but I, I, I don't want them near me. I'm not a snake. Hey, look at the bright side. If you got snakes, you don't have mice. That's true. <laughs> they take care of rodents. Or you can just have cats. Yeah. Yeah, then you got to get a dog to take care of the cat. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Well, we got a dog. So we had, we, we had a, we, we got a cat for my daughter, Reagan, and then, we got a cat for my son, Chase. So we had two cats. Then our older daughter moved back home and she had two cats. So for about a year and a half, we had four cats in the house. She moved back out. She moved to Richmond. Uh, she had a teaching job, uh, teaching art near Richmond somewhere. And I don't know what possessed us to do this, but we're like, oh, maybe it's a good idea to get a dog. And <laughs> A lot of it was because one of the two cats is extremely social, playful, young, and like, I'll get a playmate for the cat. So we're still working on that becoming playmates thing. So we'll see how that goes. Everybody's got pets. That's one of our things we see with, you know, property management now. Pets, everybody's got a pet. And I think at one time, pets were probably a therapy. Now everybody needs therapy, apparently, because everybody's got a pet. <laughs> yeah. At least all the young people think they need that. Yeah, yeah, they do. It's like almost a badge of honor to the young people. I think so. I'm a victim. <laughs> exactly. That's a whole other topic for <laughs> a whole other podcast. It's a different profession I've got. Therapy. Yeah. Oh, that part of the revolution too? That's part of, well, it's part of real estate is therapy. We are, we are unlicensed therapists. You know what? I've actually thought. Or, emo or emotional support animals because... Yeah, that's emotional support are. agents. Yeah, we're emotional support agents. Yeah, we we solve. We sometimes keep marriages together. Sometimes I don't know that we've ever broken one up. I don't think so. But we definitely hold them together through the buying process or the selling process because that's that's a brutal brutal event for husband and wife to go through. For that exact reason, I've actually thought about inviting a therapist to come on the podcast <laughs> just to kind of talk about the emotions and everything that you go through during the purchase process because it is a big deal. Yeah, and then, you, then you're going to need a, a pharmacist to prescribe the drugs to keep everybody on keel. There you go. <laughs> I have a past client who's a pharmacist. Maybe I'll invite her to Excellent. Yeah. So anybody thinking about moving here? We have military people coming in and out, PCSing they call it. What's some of your favorite things about our area, about Virginia? Why do you like living here? Why should somebody else want to come here? 
Well, Williamsburg's on the outskirts of all the military hub around Hampton Roads, but people really like Williamsburg because it's a small community. And, and as, as you know, we see our clients and customers all over town all the time. It's at a restaurant, it's at the grocery store, it's at a traffic light, it's riding your bike. You just, you see people. So this little town of 100,000 people, um, or of all the, the towns that make up Williamsburg, 100,000 people living here, you see people you know. I think it's a, we've got a lot of ways to get around. We're not a grid, so you don't have gridlock. You can get around uh, Route 199 or one of the four ironbound roads and, and get where you got to go without without a hassle. But we're close enough to the interstate, so the guys going out to Yorktown or um, even Langley and Fort Eustis, this is a short drive, but your quality of life, I think, is a little bit better up here, and it's what people want. So I think if they explore it, they'll really say, maybe we don't have a vibrant nightlife, maybe the bars aren't open until 2 o'clock, but I don't think that's a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Um, there's plenty to eat and drink and do until 11 or 12 o'clock at night, and we have great music venues, different places uh, in town that do that. Um, James City County puts on music and events down at the beach. Williamsburg has a beach. People sometimes don't even know we have a beach, but we got a great little beach area in James City County. And then you got your county with your town beach. So within that 20, 26 mile stretch of Colonial Parkway, you got two great beaches that you can hang out at and not have to go through the tunnel and go to Virginia Beach. So I don't think there's anything we have, we don't, we're missing up here, except maybe a drive in theater. Hmm. Yeah, those are probably pretty <laughs> far and a uh, few between these days. <laughs> you don't see many of them around, but it'd be fun to have one. Yeah, but there's water everywhere. So if you love yeah. water, this is a great place to be. Yeah. Beaches, rivers, not a long drive to Virginia Beach. And yeah. yeah, it's very family oriented, not a huge big nightlife. But if you're young, Richmond's not far. The peninsula of Virginia Beach, Norfolk, there's lots okay. of stuff to do down there. Three, three airports within 50 miles of here that, that'll fly anywhere in the country or the world. So, um, you know, we've got the train station in Williamsburg that's right in the middle of Williamsburg. You can get to DC in two and a half or three hours. It's cheaper to take the train than it is to park in DC. You can take the train up for a day and go see a baseball game or hang out or go to Alexandria and Old Town and spend the night there and get on the train and come back. Yeah, never have to take a parking. Oh, it's ridiculous. Than driving the traffic. Yeah. yeah that, that three hour trip in a car could be five real easy. So, you know, the train station is super convenient. And I love the Newport News Airport. It's a small airport. But when I've traveled there, the problem becomes if you miss a connection getting home, mm-hmm. there's very few flights in and out. Yeah. So when I've missed a connection coming back home, I've had to fly back to Richmond or Norfolk. And Uber back to get my vehicle. So it's a great airport, easy to get in and out of because mm-hmm. there's no crowds, there's no nothing, easy to park, and it's perfect as long as you don't miss a connection. Yep, exactly. That's where the problem is. Yeah. Well, cool. Hey, this has been fun. Uh, certainly learned a lot. Anything else you think our folks should know? Anything you want them to know about Jim or any last advice you have for the real estate world? Uh, I would, the only thing that I would say is I've, I've gotten is the interest rates are a topic of discussion. You, you get that more than anything. People are complaining to you that like you've raised the interest rates to 7%. They're exactly what they were in 2005. So perspectively in 2005, we never thought six or 7% was a high rate. 
today we think 7% percent high because we had 3% for so long and really good rates. But I've recently had a couple of people do assumptions, which is not in your favor because th that's not a process that you necessarily get involved in. You've certainly done a lot of VA loans, but those sellers now that have that two and a quarter, two and a half, two and three quarter percent interest rate can take that, ho that house and sell it to somebody who can assume their mortgage and that person's going to get that rate. I think it's FHAs are assumable, although they were a little bit higher, so you don't see a lot of it. But all of our, our veterans out there that have taken advantage of the VA loan and got such good rates for the last three or four years, uh, even before that, all those loans are assumable. So I, I would imagine that every VA loan that's been written in the last 15 years is below today's interest rate. So all of those can be sold and, and go through that assumption process. It's not easy. It takes a little bit longer. The buyer's got to have the money to pay the difference so that they can buy that equity back out of the house from the owner. But if it works in 60 or 70 days and you can save thousands of dollars in your mortgage, why not? Yeah, that's a great point. And absolutely something that is a hot topic for military folks now. If you've got a house to sell and you have a VA mortgage in the threes or whatever, even in the fours, an assumption means someone else can take over that mortgage. Mm -hmm. So they take over whatever's left that's due, but they also get that interest rate. So if you're selling your home in the current market and say a VA rate is in the neighborhood of 7%, you can sell your home with an interest rate of 3%, that mortgage will go along with it, that's a huge savings for that buyer. Okay. Now the buyer's got to come up with basically the, the equity difference. Mm -hmm. So let's say you owe 300,000 and you sell the house for 400,000, they got to make up that $100,000. Theoretically, sometimes you can finance some of that. You know, most of the time it's an out-of-pocket thing. Uh, and it does take some time to get through the process because it has to go through the existing lender's customer service. So the, the seller slash holder of the property have to go to their lender and that lender's not really making any money off of doing this. Though so at least they'll get to keep the, the loan and keep you know, the 3% the interest or whatever it is. And there may be like a small processing fee, but it's also a cost savings and you don't have to go through a lot of the same mortgage side closing costs. Well, I think the, the servicers that have been, USA has a lot of VA loans. PennyMac has a lot of VA loans. ServeBank, I think, has been buying some of the USA paper. So, so that money's, you know, that money's in their bank already. The, the debt is in their bank. I think the, the foresighted lenders and servicers that have those are thinking ahead saying, okay, this person just came up with a, a lot of money to, to buy this previous person's equity. That's a good borrower. Right. This guy's got money. He saved money and he's paying that equity off and he's got the equity and that homeowner still has the equity. So if they decide they want to renovate or do something, they got equity in it. They can take out a, an equity line probably from that lender at a higher interest rate and they're going to keep making money. So I think that the banks, uh, as now that's becoming more and more common and I've, I've done two this year that um, worked out well. I think one is in the process right now that should work out fine for the buyer and the seller. Um, but, but those banks, I hope, are thinking long-term, saying five or 10 years from now, this guy's going to buy another house. He'll come to us first, or we're going to give him an equity line, and we're still get his, we still have his paper, and he's a good borrower. He didn't go bankrupt. Right, he didn't right. run away from his house. Now we got this bad house back, 
like we saw in 2008 and when the banks were taking them back, they didn't want them and they don't want them today. So they have good paper and they want to keep it. And it's a great opportunity for a buyer to save some money if they've got some cash in a 401k or access to the cash to pay that equity. Uh, it's probably going to pay them back tenfold. Yeah, and as a seller, as a veteran, you're protected in most cases. If it's another veteran purchasing your home, they have what they call substitute eligibility. So they put their VA eligibility to purchase in place of yours on that same mortgage, then yours gets released and you can go buy something else and you are completely free of anything to do with that house, that mortgage. So it may have been your mortgage, but if they stop making payments on it, not your problem, not your issue. Now, in theory, you can sell that to someone who's not VA eligible, not another veteran. They can still assume it, but your VA eligibility stays tied to that mortgage. So you, it could limit your ability to purchase another home using your VA eligibility, but also if they were to stop paying, if they were to go into a default, that could go against your entitlement. So there could be some negative repercussions if you resell and assume to a civilian versus another military person, active duty, retired, whatever, they replace their eligibility with yours and you're off to a fresh start. So, so my conventional buyer, a non-military, wants to assume a VA mortgage. Does that veteran get his whole eligibility back? No. Even though, even though they, there is no is his, VA mortgage, the VA mortgage is still now there. Right. And he's still technically on the hook for it, like FHA. Right. So does that, does that current guy then, this, this military guy who sold his house, and, he, and he's got this eligibility thing hanging out there while he's hoping these other people are making the payment on his house, on his mortgage, if they go bad, does he get the option to buy that house back for the, for the mortgage amount? Probably not. No, I wouldn't think so. Uh, because let's say you, you mentioned Penny Mac as one of the big servicers of the A mortgages. When they take over that mortgage, when they, when they make that mortgage, say of $300,000, the VA doesn't get involved in the, until the event of a default. They guarantee the mortgage in the event of default, and then they will step in if that lender loses money. So let's say the $300,000 mortgage goes to foreclosure, resells for $250,000, the VA can come in and reimburse that lender the $50,000 loss that they incurred. So if they were to release that eligibility, they, they lose that insurance. So that lender, servicer, Penny Mac, they're not gonna release that VA eligibility unless they put somebody else's in place because they lose their protections and it's a much riskier loan. Uh, but yeah, if it does default, it's they're not going to go after the the veteran, the prior veteran for like you know paying that fifty thousand. But it will go against their eligibility. So as a veteran, you have a set amount of VA eligibility that you are granted, and whatever loss they incurred would come would be charged to the VA, charged to your VA eligibility. So you could lose a chunk or all of it. So you may not be able to purchase it all using a VA again if it was really significant, or you know maybe it'll just limit you know, how much you can purchase with no down payment. 
So if somebody, no matter what the balance was, so if somebody had say a $300,000 loan that was being assumed by somebody else, the house had $100,000 in equity in it. So the buyer's got the equity. The guy's eligibility is stuck at that $300,000 note. As it, as it goes down, does his eligibility then go up to meet his eligibility amount? No, or it's all it based on the original mortgage. So amount. he's got that $300,000 limit. So if he's, you can buy more than one VA mortgage, right? A guy can have up to the limit. So he would still be able to get something, yep. but maybe not a whole house, not the yes. whole mortgage. So it's tough. Or you can purchase. So the, one of the great benefits of a VA mortgage is you can purchase no down payment. Mm -hmm. So if you don't have full entitlement, full eligibility, then you can purchase, but you may have to make a down payment. So let's go back to that same scenario. Let's say a veteran wants to purchase a $400,000 house. They have $300,000 in remaining VA eligibility. So it's a $100,000 difference. You have to put down 25% of the difference. So in that case, they put down $25,000, which eh, that's still a pretty good deal. Mm -hmm. $25,000 for a $400,000 purchase is a very reasonable down payment. And then you still get the other benefits of the VA mortgage, which is you know, great lower fixed rates, no PMI, no private mortgage insurance. You know, so there's a lot of really good benefits to the VA, but yeah, just because you've used it before doesn't mean you can't use it again. And you can use it again, even if you still have the prior house. Cool. So the so the military people that unfortunately are forced to move around, you know, three, four, five years at a time, if they can keep doing that and, and buy houses and either sell them or hang on to one or two of them, and, and maybe have some rental income, they, if they can buy it and they move, they can rent that house out. They still have their eligibility to buy the house on the next move. Exactly. And maybe in in the first. This, this young service person's 10 years of employment, they can have a couple of houses. Yeah. And that's and not, exactly, not put the money down. And that's exactly why they did it. Not to develop a real estate portfolio for military folks, but to allow them to be able to move and purchase efficiently. So it used to be you can only have one VA at a time. You have to pay the old one off, et cetera. Now they allow that because people do move and maybe you can't sell the other house as fast as you like. In this market, sure you can, uh, but you know, not in every market. So it allows you to purchase prior to that house being sold, or you know, maybe you want to keep it. Uh, we have a, a guest coming soon uh, for our podcast who he's a retired military subcommander. And he's acquired real estate, a portfolio of having moved and acquired houses and kept them as rentals. Uh, and he's expanded uh, to have a significant real estate portfolio. So yeah, that's a great opportunity for military folks. And that's how a lot of real estate gurus recommend building your portfolio as you start with your first small house. And then when you're ready for the next one, keep that one, rent it out and get your next one and just keep going and moving and growing. I wish I'd had my first house. I bought my first house for $43,000 in 1985. Wow. I think it's worth 250 today, but it would have been, it would have generated 200,000, $300,000 in rental income over the last 20 years, yeah. 30 years. Crazy. I see lots of means of, uh, and I'm in real estate now, but I wasn't in real estate then, but I wish I was. <laughs> yep. I see lots of memes about that lately. They'll show like an old person dancing. And it'll be like baby boomers when they sold their house for half a million dollars that they purchased 
in the 80s for $23,000 and a handful of almonds. Yeah, so <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's the number one source of wealth in the United States. Yeah, yeah. real estate's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with it. And it's stability because rents will always go up, but once you have a mortgage, your payment's not going to go up other than maybe taxes and insurance, and maybe go down because, as we talked about, rates are average historically. Uh, I was born in 71, and the average rate in my lifetime is 7.74%. So they're really average, if not even slightly below so 71, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we're, we're about there. And you're old. I am. Dang, 71. Now we know how old Kevin is. My kids remind me of that <laughs> all the time. Yeah, and but yeah, I mean, I've had houses I wish I, wish I kept all the houses I've lived in. Because the company I started with... I started in consumer finance in London. I think we did loans and mortgages, and they moved me around a lot. And I wish I kept all those houses. Mm-hmm. Hindsight. It's one thing I tell the young kids keep the house. Yep. Figure out how to make it work. Maybe you don't need the $800 Tesla car payment. You'd rather have an $800 mortgage payment that somebody's paying you $1,600 to rent. And then, and then you do that for a number of years and then go buy a Tesla. But. Yeah, I follow a guy, uh, I forget his name, but he's like a short-term rental coach, et cetera. And that's what he says. That's what he did. He said, I had a good job and had progressive income, but I kept my lifestyle just bare minimum. I didn't have the fancy car. I you know, kept everything, put all that money away and put it into real estate and then took equity out of that one. I bought the next one. I bought the next one. And I think now he has seven properties pulling in about $100,000 a month on average, you know, and he's young. I think he's in his thirties. Yeah. I was a, had a brief career as a snap on tool dealer. And one of the guys that was, a, was a dealer and still is, I think had started buying houses probably 15 years ago. He's got 15 houses all paid for Wow. generating $20,000 a month in income, you know, but he pays his taxes. He updates the houses, but he's kept his rents reasonable. His tenants stay for a long time and they're good tenants. So he, he keeps them there. Um, they're all modest. They were all modestly priced houses, $150,000. They were cheap houses as he was buying them. They're all worth more money than that today. I don't know. I have no idea what the houses are worth, but I would imagine he's got probably $3 million in houses, maybe wow. all paid for, all paid for by somebody else. Somebody yeah. else paid for them. That's yeah. it. How bad is that? That's real financial freedom. <laughs> That's freedom. That's yeah, freedom. If you're not cash trying to nine to five cash job. Flow, you got the asset to still sell if you have to. His, his daughter's going to get them all. She's going to inherit all of it. So she's she's already buying property at 25. I helped her buy her first house. Wow. So she's got his portfolio that she knows she's going to sit on. She wants to do the exact same thing for herself at 25, which is much younger than when he bought his first house. So kids are smart. Yep. Real estate. Mm-hmm. They aren't making any more of it, and you're going to be competing more and more with corporate buyers. Mm-hmm. I was just reading a thing. Uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. running for president as an independent, uh, and we're not getting into politics, but he was saying something about his, his expectation is before too long uh, that three major corporations, investment trusts, will own 60% of the residential real estate in the United States. Huge. It was Black Rock, Blackstone, uh, whatever that is, and Vanguard, and one more. Uh, but yeah, when you 
put a house on the market, they're coming out with cash offers on some random LLC and they're buying up real estate. Uh, Warren Buffett said in 2007 or 2008, when the, the housing market collapsed so badly, he would buy every house on the market if he had a way to manage it because he knows what a good investment it is. And you look at, so Berkshire Hathaway is, you know, owns a lot of that real estate companies. They've got real estate, obviously it's a big company, but um, not talking politics, like it or not, Donald Trump owns a lot of real estate. He, he, he made his money in real estate. So um, it, it's not something to be scoffed at. It's a, it's a real investment. And I'm not sure the financial advisors stress enough that. I think they like keeping people's money in the financial markets that they can control. They can't control an asset that's real estate. So they don't necessarily tell people that, but you know, there are more and more people taking that money out of the stock market because it's done so well. Take that free money now and buy some another asset, put it in real estate, pay somebody else to manage it and let it grow because it's not going to go down in value. It may need more work, but it's it's not going to lose value. I agree. And I've been living that that same real estate coach, uh, the coach of short-term rentals. It's like Michael Elefante or something. Uh, anyway, that's one of his big things is you can save money, you can put it in the stock market in your 401k, and yeah, it's probably going to grow, but so is inflation. You know, that to get true wealth and to get true financial independence, it's real estate. Especially if it's investments, because other people are paying your mortgage payments, you're growing equity, and it's it's a true path to financial freedom, success, wealth, and generational wealth. Like your person who's handing that portfolio down to their daughter. Yeah. So it doesn't go away. It doesn't go away. You pay some taxes on it when that happens, but um, from an investment standpoint, I think real estate has has been, and I wish I knew that. 30 years ago when I sold that house for 75, I sold that house and I bought it for 43. I sold it for 75, thought it was a genius. Turned around and bought my next house here is a brand new house. I was 23 years old, bought a brand new house for $99,000. And I wish I had that house too. Yeah. And back then that seemed like so much money. Yeah. Just like now they seem like so much money. So I, mean, I preach to my kids, buy, buy, yeah. buy. We talk to young people, but hey, They'll probably listen about as much as we did yeah, when that, we were young. That $80,000 Tesla in 10 years is probably worth, I don't know what it's going to be worth. Maybe not much, maybe nothing. In 10 years, it might not be worth anything. Right. Nothing. Yeah. Who knows where the technology is <laughs> going to go. Yeah. And, you know, the. the yeah, oh, you need, your car needs a new battery. That's $10,000. Right. And what do you do with the old one? <laughs> yeah. yeah. You can't tell me it's environmentally conscious to pull up all of these ores out of the ground, all these chemicals and things, ship them all over the world to make batteries, then ship the batteries, put them in these vehicles, and then at the end of the lifespan, you have this toxic battery. We don't know what we're gonna do with them all yet. It's gonna end up on the moon. <laughs> That's why we're, we're going to the moon to find a place to dump our trash, I think. <laughs> Have like a big giant like projectile yeah. shooter. Yeah, conveyor belt. We need a conveyor belt. Amazon, space. Amazon could build a conveyor belt because they probably got two hundred thirty-five thousand miles of conveyor belt already. Probably. And they'll just conveyor it up to up to the moon. Perfect. Yeah, there you go. We just shoot it out into space. <laughs> Make it someone else's problem. Yeah. Someone in a different galaxy, far, far away. Right. Cool. Hey, this has been super fun. Uh, hopefully, it's been informative for folks. 
I really appreciate you coming out. Thanks for having uh, me. Tell folks if they want to get in touch with Jim Mellon, uh, how they reach out to you, how they find you. Well, Google would be a great idea. If you go to Google, you can find me if you spell my name correctly. Chances are, if you spell my name wrong, you'll still find me, but it's Jim Mellon, M-E-L-L-E-N. And my website is jimsrevolution.com. Pretty easy to pretty easy to remember. Cool. And they can reach me through that or they can call me, email me, text me, 757-810-3642. Very cool. Right. Thanks, Jim. And we'd love to have you back again. And until then, much appreciated. Go Bills. That wraps up another episode of Got Your Six Real Estate Podcast. Remember, you can find new episodes every week at gotyoursixrealestatepodcast.com. If you found value in today's insights, please subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. Until next week, this is Kevin Amazon, and remember, we've got your six.